Welcome to the DTB podcast for February 2019, volume 57, number two. My name is David Fazakli. I'm DTB's deputy editor. Hello, I'm James Cave, uh, DTB editor-in-chief. So this month, our editorial discusses inhaled corticosteroids for COPD and really considers how our knowledge of their benefits and harms has evolved over time. James, do you want to just run through a bit of the history of their use and why we're covering this? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a really interesting story. Uh, and any of us who've been in medicine for a decade or perhaps even two or three who have been and lived through this. And it's an interesting story of the 1970s uh, with inhaled corticosteroids having absolutely no place in the management of uh, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. And then 1980s, great hope that they might benefit patients in some way and a real adoption of their use in the 1990s. And certainly the NICE guidance that came out some, well, I think it was over, almost over a decade ago now, talked about escalation up through inhaled corticosteroids with long-acting beta agonists in patients who remain symptomatic or were having exacerbations. And then the big concern about patients developing pneumonia in some studies that were done in the early 2000s. And as a consequence of that, this really sort of ratcheting back of their use and only really using them in patients perhaps who were having multiple exacerbations. And we talk about that, we talk about the now the development of the role of eosinophils and eosinophilia in perhaps looking at certain cohorts of patients with COPD and using eosinophilia as a marker as to whether we should be using inhaled corticosteroids or not. And that's been driven by quite recent study, the IMPACT study that looked at the use of triple therapy compared with dual therapy and showed that it did reduce exacerbations because the outcome of interest with inhaled corticosteroids doesn't seem to, well, it does inc- improve, they do seem to have some benefit on lung function, but but the key outcome that HOPE is pinned on is that they reduce exacerbation rates and they seem to do that by a little bit. Yes, I mean, this is, this is where things get complicated, don't they? Because I think the, the the golden bullet for COPD, something that actually reduces or even reverses the general decline in lung function has yet to be found. No drug apart from perhaps continuous oxygen in those really severely COPD patients. No drug alters the outcome. Now, what has been marketed a great deal in the last few years is the idea that if you reduce exacerbations, then you might reduce the harms that are associated with those exacerbations. And that's where the drive has been. So it, it's an, it's a complex area. And I think what we're discovering is that, like so much of medicine, uh, if you just have a, an algorithm that just blindly has a sort of additive effect, you're going to miss the boat here. And it's about looking for those cohorts of patients who will benefit and avoiding inhaled corticosteroids in those that won't. And the emerging story, which we're now going down the route of, seems to be that if you can measure eosinophil levels, you may be able to stratify those patients who should, could get the greatest benefit from inhaled corticosteroids, but it's still... It's still an emerging story. It is, and I think it's it's the you know we we were talking about asthma, COPD, overlap syndrome only a year or two back, and that's now rather disappeared into the woodwork. But there is this concept of these 
asthmatic phenotype. So these are patients with COPD who have an asthmatic tendency, if you like, and that's the group that seems to benefit from inhaled corticosteroids. And that's the group where one of the features of that phenotype is a raised eosinophil count. But the parallel to this really is that it's a classic story of medicine in the NHS from no hope to great hope to overuse to reining back to finding a niche role and actually then locating where a drug is best best placed. Absolutely. And in fact, I, I cannot think of, of any drug that hasn't gone through that cycle. And this is exactly the case with inhaled corticosteroids. OK, thank you very much. Our first article this month is the management of subclinical hypothyroidism in pregnancy. So let's have a quick overview. What's what's the issue here? Yes, yeah, so we're talking about subclinical hypothyroidism. So this is patients who are asymptomatic, who have a raised thyroid stimulating hormone, but normal uh, serum T4. And of course, we know that outside pregnancy, treating this condition has no benefit. So we're coming into it with, with that understanding. And what we do in our article is we look at the instance of subclinical hypothyroidism in pregnancy. We look at the traps around the fact that thyroid function measures do alter in pregnancy. So the parameters change and you need to be aware of that. And we ask ourselves, you know, does having subacute hypothyroidism in pregnancy cause any harm? Does treating it, if you discover it, do any good? And and should we be screening for it? So we're looking at it. It's a, it's a nice generalized review of the current situation using some really up to date uh, evidence. But suffering from the same problem that we come across time and time again, that medicines generally are not licensed or do not have a, a specific license for use in pregnancy. And this is no difference with thyroxine. Yes, that was, I mean, I have to say, I was completely gobsmacked to to see this, that, you know, clearly, you know, there are plenty of hypothyroid uh, women who need to take thyroid uh, supplements in pregnancy and continue them, you know, and yet this, this is a drug that has yet to be licensed uh, for pregnant women. What a shocker, really, in the concept of licensing, but there we are. Okay, thank you very much. And our final article this month is an overview of Gilbert syndrome. So again, what, what is about and what do we cover? So as, as I'm sure most of our listeners will know, Gilbert syndrome is a benign condition where patients have um, mildly to moderately raised unconjugated bilirubin. This is a good story. This is, if you like, this is a, um, a positive story because what I learned from, from this study was that Gilbert syndrome actually perhaps makes you live longer Perhaps there is some evidence, perhaps, that it is protectional against certain cancers. But we talk about it. We talk about really the fundamental message from this article is we should be able to diagnose it in primary care. We don't need to be referring these patients on. We need to mark the notes really adequately so these patients don't continually get investigated. Because as our author suggests, actually, these patients are most at harm from being over investigated than they are actually from their condition. And we just mentioned one or two of the drug adverse effects that perhaps affect people with Gilbert syndrome more than the, the average person. But it's a nice overview. I say I learned some uh, more stuff from it. And I think what it does is just give GPs and those working outside secondary care that confidence to manage it without referring on. And the one key message for anyone who has got Gilbert syndrome is tell everybody you encounter in the health service that you have it so that you then don't surprise them when they see some 
finding on a blood test that they weren't expecting. Absolutely. And of course, the, the issue is that very often it's when they're under some sort of physiological stress that these patients actually get a spike in their in their bilirubin. So they you might have picked it up as a GP with a with a very mildly raised uh, bilirubin and then they might have surgery or have some sort of physiological stress and get a spike. So if the hospital is pre-warned, they're not going to go down the road of investigating further. OK, thank you very much. To read these and any of our articles, please visit our website at dtb.bmj.com. And as ever, we welcome any suggestions for future topics or articles. Please email us at dtb.bmj.com. At